John chapter 2, verses 12 through 25. Gospel of John. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. Spirit, now we come to your inspired word. And once again, we just ask that you shape us and mold us to be more like you, Jesus. We ask even today, as we look at this passage, you help us to grow in your passions. Help me to grow in your passions. Help us to rise up and have the zeal for the things that you have zeal for, Jesus. And we ask this in your name. Well, this is quite an account, isn't it? Jesus going into the temple and taking on the powers that be in the, the temple here, this very sacred place. Remember last week we looked at Jesus in, in the second chapter of the Gospel of John and that, that miracle, that sign, really his first sign, the, the Apostle John calls it, that changing water to wine. Here Jesus is coming into Jerusalem here at the very beginning of his ministry and he walks into the temple and he confronts the powers that be. There's some interesting things to observe as we begin and walk down through this passage, but it will help us to understand and to think about this, this picture of cleansing the temple. In the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the cleansing of the temple takes place during Passion Week, towards the end of their Gospels. But here the Apostle John places the cleansing at the beginning of his Gospel. Well, that has led to no end to the conversation among the commentators about whether it was one cleansing, and perhaps John got it wrong, or was it two cleansings? One, in fact, in 
Holy Week. And then another one here at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. Which was it? And for centuries, scholars have been going back and forth about what they think is happening there. It seems to me, after going through the literature, that for me, it's best to look at it as two cleansings actually having taken place. John is highlighting this cleansing because it serves his purposes of writing an evangelistic gospel. And the other writers, for the similar reason, it serves their purpose to highlight that cleansing of the temple towards uh, the end of Jesus' earthly ministry during that, that Holy Week, that Passion Week. So two cleansings, but the Apostle John here noting and highlighting the, this one here at the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus. Remember last week when we looked at Jesus, where he was, he was in the region of Galilee. There near the, the Sea of Galilee. But here, the, the Apostle even tells us that he went down to Capernaum, so we know that's where he was being near the Sea of Galilee, and then he goes up to Jerusalem. So here now he's going into Judea, into this very important place, Jerusalem, really the center of Judaism. So he's, he's moving there. As we look at verse 12, after this he went down to Capernaum. Capernaum will be the headquarters for the ministry of Jesus. And with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Just interesting to note there, he's with his disciples. At least six at this point, perhaps more, have gathered around, certainly onlookers, curious about who Jesus is. But his disciples here that we, we looked at last week, Andrew and Simon Peter, of course, and, and Philip and Nathaniel, those, those disciples that were initially called by Jesus, but he also mentions here, the apostle does, the brothers of Jesus. These are the half-brothers of Jesus, the, the sons of Mary and Joseph, which really we see here the apostle John, just immediately when we see this passage, it calls into question and actually defeats the, the doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary. Mary and Joseph had a godly relationship. Of course, Jesus was conceived miraculously by the Holy Spirit. But later on, these, these other the brothers of Jesus were conceived and born in quite natural ways. And we see the Apostle John just in passing mentioning his brothers right here. It says in verse 13, the Passover of the Jews. He doesn't say the Passover of God. Very interesting there. And most of the scholars think that the apostle is really pointing to the fact that the Jews have actually corrupted the leadership of, of Judaism, have corrupted what Passover means. And it really is not the Passover of God and all the meaning and, and uh, the, the, the worship that's involved in that celebration, the Passover being the, the celebration of Israel being, being delivered out of bondage in, in Egypt and that, that celebration of all that has taken place in that. But it's the Passover of the Jews. Something is happening with this celebration that is not honoring to God and it seems that the apostle is just in passing real quickly, putting in kind of a dig here. The Passover of the Jews, they really have corrupted what had been intended with that 
celebration. So Jesus went up to Jerusalem and he goes into this temple and really he confronts this situation that's going on. Now it's good for us to remember this temple is commonly referred to and has been for centuries Herod's temple. Remember that the first temple, Solomon's temple, was, was built back in, in the mid-900s, let's say 950 B.C. Solomon built that temple there. And even as we went through our study in the book of Daniel, we, we saw how important that temple was, but the Babylonians came in and destroyed the temple, and, and there was this exile that took place where Daniel and others were taken into Babylon. Well, time passed, and, and they, the Jews returned into Jerusalem, and they rebuilt this temple, and that's called the second temple. The second temple period when the Jews return to Jerusalem and the temple is being rebuilt. Well, time moves along and, and Herod wants to take that second temple that's been, that has been built during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Here, hundreds of years later, Herod is on the scene and he wants to expand that, make something very, very grand. Uh, as far as the temple is concerned. And Herod really is wanting to find favor with the Jews. Herod it has some Jewish blood in him, but he's not a purebred. And he really is not liked by the Jews. He, he is a half-breed Jew. And he wants to find favor with them and power, political stability, of course. And so he undertakes this construction progress project that goes for years and years and years. It began in about 19 or 20 B.C. And here at this point, we read in the Gospel of John, they, they say it's taken 46 years to build this temple. So up to this point, it's been 46 years and they weren't completed yet. It wasn't completed until um, 64, 65 A.D. It really wasn't even completed then. There were some more things that needed to be done, but it was ultimately destroyed in A.D. 70 when the Romans came in and sacked Jerusalem, overran Jerusalem, and destroyed the temple. But it's Herod's temple that is in the picture here, what's known as Herod's temple. It's intended to be God's temple, of course, but we can refer to it as Herod's temple. There, this massive, massive complex. There's the, the temple itself, the holy place, the holy of holies, and then the holy place. Then there's these courtyards around the holy of holies and the, the walls, the perimeter of this temple complex. Some, some say perhaps 35 acres. Enormous complex. And there's this area called the Court of the Gentiles. Gentile converts could come and come be into the, the court of the Gentiles. They could not go into where the Jews did their sacrifice, did their worship. But this was the court of the court of the Gentiles. And uh, the commentators, scholars looking at this say this is this is where this selling and this activity is going on is in the court of the Gentiles. And it's so busy. It, it's uh, so much chaos and so much activity going on that, that really it prevents, in all likelihood, it's really an obstacle for the Gentiles to even come into the temple complex. 
They're supposed to be able to come in at least to some portion of the, the temple. But all of this is going on and the Gentiles aren't even able to get to that point. That's just a piece of the problem that's uh, facing us here. So that's just a little background of why Jesus comes into Jerusalem and he's very concerned about the situation. Now we have to remember that probably, very likely, this Jesus had been to the temple been to Jerusalem many times. Being a faithful Jewish man, he had been to the temple many times. So remember early in, in his life, when he was 12 years old, we read about in Luke, he's there, he's there teaching in dialogue with the Old Testament scholars of the day. And his mother and father come and, and want him to rejoin the caravan back home. We read, so he's there at 12 years old. We don't read much, don't know much about what happened in those years following that time. But here Jesus is at this point, grown man, faithful Jew. He's likely been to the temple many times, many times before. So he comes in, he sees this situation. He sees this selling going on. Now, it had been in years prior that this activity of selling was taking place across the Kidron Valley and on the slope of the Mount of Olives outside Jerusalem, outside the temple complex. But here, this activity, all this commerce has been now, now moved into this courtyard, this courtyard area. So what's happening here? Just what's the context? What's going on here? Well, the Passover is very important as you know, a very holy day and a holy time, the whole festival, week-long festival for the, the Israelites, the, the Hebrews, the Jewish people, very important time for them. Every male, 12 years old and older, was required to come to Jerusalem and, and present a sacrifice during Passover. Come, come and present a sacrifice at the temple. That was a, a requirement. So these people trekked all this distance, all this way across the world from way up in the regions, what we call today the nation of Turkey in that region, perhaps further than that, south down to Egypt, or maybe the Sinai Peninsula, of this wide-ranging area that people would travel, pilgrims, would travel into Jerusalem as well as the people who live more nearby, perhaps in Galilee or in the area. All of these people would come and there would this, be this massive influx of people coming into Jerusalem and they needed to bring a sacrifice. Well, to bring an animal, an animal from that dip far away, for that distance, well, the animals very likely would just not be in the condition to present as a sacrifice. Traveling all over that rugged terrain, wherever they were coming from, with, with this individual bringing, bringing perhaps a, a lamb, a sheep, uh, bringing some other sacrifice with them that just wasn't presentable for the sacrifice. So the idea was that you wouldn't have to bring a sacrifice. You could, you could come to Jerusalem and you could purchase your sacrifice. 
And it would be a proper sacrifice. It would be an unblemished sacrifice and that could be presented and would be received and accepted at the temple. So that was the idea. It was to make things a little more convenient for people so that they could, could come and they could present a, a worthy sacrifice as they were required to do. Uh, the problem is that purchasing a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice in Jerusalem, purchasing an animal sacrifice in this chaos that's going on in the temple in the court of the Gentiles was very, very expensive. <laughs> Inflated prices. The merchants, um, the people that were in business understood they could take advantage of the situation. And in fact, the religious authorities knew that they could take advantage of that situation and profit from that situation because those are religious authorities, the high priest Annas and, and his son-in-law Caiaphas, particularly in the group that was around them, they would give authority for these merchants to come in and sell these animals. Why, that would present itself as a profit-making opportunity. So in, instead of an animal having a market value of, of say, $10, why, they might come to Jerusalem and have to purchase a sacrifice. That animal might be... Uh, the price on it might be $30 or $40 or $50. Don't know. I'm just using an example here. One scholar did say that a pigeon, for example, may have a, a market value of a nickel. But was being sold for $4 to these pilgrims. That kind of thing was going on. And so people would come and they, they would be fulfilling their obligation to come to the temple, but they needed a sacrifice and they were being taken advantage of. Now, not only was a sacrifice needed, there's the temple tax, the tax issue. Every male 20 years old and older was required to pay the temple tax each year. So, you come to Jerusalem, you need to sacrifice, of course, but then you also need this, these, this money for the tax. And the taxing amount was about a half a shekel, but it couldn't be paid in your personal, your currency, whatever region you came from, whatever currency that was. It couldn't be paid. The temple wouldn't accept it. They would only accept the, the currency that was authorized by the, the temple authorities. And that currency had a particular silver content that was acceptable to the temple and that's the only currency that they would re receive and so you come from a, a, a far off region or maybe Galilee or wherever the region might be you have your money your currency that you use for your living we have to go to the money changer to get the proper currency and of course the money changers charge uh, a very profitable exchange rate. And they too take advantage of the situation because the temple tax has to be paid. If we're going to exchange your money for this authorized money, and then we're going to make some money here in the middle. So people are being taken advantage of. Jesus doesn't think very highly about that. So that's the, the context. That's the, the picture 
that Jesus and his disciples, are, they're walking into this picture. Jesus comes in and he, he finds those in verse 14, selling oxen and sheep, pigeons, the money changers sitting there. And what does he do? It, it, the, 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 the scripture says that he, he made a, a whip and he chased them all out of there. What's Jesus doing? Well, the point that the Apostle John wants us to understand is that Jesus is demonstrating his authority over this temple. He, he's not going to have this manipulation that's going on, this irreverence that's going on. Uh, he, in verse 15, it says, In making a whip of cords, he drove them all, the merchants and the animals, out of the temple. Drove them out, out of there. Jesus is exercising his authority because, again, if we, if we grasp the picture, trying to go in, back into that culture, no one comes into the temple and exercises that kind of authority. The only one with that kind of authority is the high priest. Uh, you've got the San, Sanhedrin, you've got the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you've got that network of authority, but the high priest... Annas and his son-in-law Caiaphas, they're the ones with the authority. They're the ones who will allow or not allow someone to operate within this complex and to do this kind of activity. Who are you, Jesus, to come in here to do something like this? In fact, that's what we see in verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? They're exercised. They're upset. Who comes in here and, and is challenging our authority? These Jews that are mentioned in verse 18 are very likely the, the temple police that are, are wanting to know what's happening here, what kind of activity is going on. So Jesus is a, asserting his authority, and he can do that. He can assert his authority because it's his temple. This is God's temple. Jesus is God. It's, it's a statement of His deity. You can imagine the, the leadership. This is, this is God's house and we have authority here. We've been given authority by God. And Who are you to come in here and tell us and tell everyone else what they can do in here? Who do you think you are? Jesus is walking in and exercising authority over the, the temple because it is His temple. He has the right to exercise that authority. We don't want that concept to escape us. That Jesus has the absolute divine right to exercise authority over His temple. What's happening here? Jesus comes in and He's pronouncing judgment. He's pronouncing judgment on these temple operations because they are not in line with their intended purpose. We don't want that to escape us either. These activities that are going on in the temple are not in line with the intended purpose that God had for the temple. Now you can re remember historically, Old Testament, uh, that the Israelites as they're wandering uh, around in, in the desert, in, as they move into the, the, the promised land, the tabernacle. 
the, the tabernacle is the, the tent of meeting. And then time goes along and then Solomon's temple comes on the picture. What is that? What is the temple? What is the tabernacle? Well, it's, it's the place where the Most High, Most Holy God reveals Himself to humanity. The, it's, it's the place where the presence of God and the blessing of God come in to, to engage with humanity. Now, the theology of the Hebrews was not so naive or so elemental as to, to deny that God is omnipresent. <laughs> God is everywhere. The universe cannot contain God. The world cannot contain God. They had a grasp on that. They, they knew that. But this place, the temple, the tabernacle, then the temple, is the place, the symbol that, that stood to, for all people to recognize God's presence and His blessing coming to meet humanity. The power of God in this place coming uniquely in this place, in this temple. The, the power of God, the forgiveness of sin, the, the proper sacrifice being given, the unblemished sacrifice, the sacrifice of the individual to travel all of that way, make all of that effort to come into this place to make this sacrifice in this magnificent complex, this magnificent structure coming into this place. And this would be the place where God would make His presence known in the Holy of Holies, but He would make Himself known in this very unique place. And Jesus is coming along and He's pronouncing judgment on the activity that's taking place because what is taking place in the temple is not according to its purpose. Well, what is its purpose? Well, as I, I, I mentioned, God, most high, holy, completely unique God, coming into contact with humanity. Revealed to humanity. Now see, Jesus helps us to understand this when we turn to Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. And in, in one verse there, Jesus helps us to see that in verse 17. And I invite you to turn in your Bibles to, to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, verse 17. As I mentioned earlier, this is the cleansing that the Mark, the Gospel of Mark, has it's highlighted for us. Verse 15, chapter 11, Gospel of Mark. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the table of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything 
anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, now listen, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. So, what is it that is on the mind of God, is on the mind of Jesus as, as God looks at the temple? Well, Jesus helps us here. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. It's a house of worship. Prayer is worship. Communication with God. It's a place of, of worship. So Jesus is doing this cleansing. He's, he has this, this confrontation early in his ministry. He has one later in his ministry. It seems like in between the, the, the people, the authorities in the temple, they really haven't learned anything from it. They're continuing in their ways, but on the second cleansing, they're ready for Jesus this time. He may have surprised them on the first time around, but this time they're going to put him to death. They're not going to have any of this. That is for sure. Jesus brings this judgment. He's, he's upset. He has this righteous anger because the honor of God is at stake. The dignity of God is at stake. The dignity of the temple is at stake. There's the, where, where is the awe-filled worship that's supposed to be taking place here? Where's the, the brokenness and the contrite heart that should be taking place in, in a worship of, of God? Rather than being a place of prayer, a place of worship, a place of brokenness where sacrifices are presented and deep reflection is taking place, God is honored. The dignity of God is honored. Instead of that, all of this chaos is going on. It doesn't meet the purpose that it was intended. And Jesus is upset about that. He is upset that the temple is not fulfilling its purpose. And the leaders are on board with that. The leaders are lining their pocket. And it seems to be that the people are on board with it too. Well, Jesus reveals something to us. He reveals this distaste, this righteous anger against irreverent, and manipulative temple abuses. Where is the reverence? This is to be a holy place. Where is the distinction within the temple as compared to the outside world? People have come all of this way. They've come this distance. They, they've come. They may have had anticipation. Some surely were coming out of drudgery and of duty. I guess this is what we have to do. We have to come every year to Jerusalem and do this thing. I'm sure some were like that. But some were coming with great anticipation. And they walk into this place. Where's the reverence? It looks just like out there in the world. That's what they deal with every day is cattle, 
and, 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 and sheep animal noises. They, they walk in through the temple. They have to watch where they step, you know. And they deal with this every day. This is not a sanctified place. It's not a place distinct from what would be found in other places in the world. And Jesus reveals to us his righteous anger against this irreverence. So what we see with Jesus is he has an enormous passion, tremendous passion. The word zeal is used in the scriptures, referring to Psalm 69.9, really a fulfillment of prophecy, 69.9 of Psalm. But his disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume, meaning destroy, will consume me. And in fact, that was the mission of the leadership was to actually destroy, consume Jesus for, for this act and for what he represented and what he taught as well. Jesus has a tremendous passion for the temple and the worship of God. So we can't pass through a passage like this. We can't read it it, with, without at least some reflection on our own life, what does this say about us? What does this say about the church in the United States of America? What does this say about the church in California? Jesus, he sees this situation at the temple. He grabs this, some, some cords and he makes a whip here. And he chases these people out. It makes you just wonder. It makes this pastor wonder. If, if Jesus walked in today, walked through the doors, came in here, I wonder if he'd be swinging a whip. I, I, I wonder if the temple of God is fulfilling its purpose or would Jesus be swinging a whip and just clear the thing out? Righteous indignation because His purposes are not being fulfilled in this place. There's a lot of activity. Oh, my, 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 my. There is a lot of activity. He's not so impressed with this kind of activity. Makes us wonder, I wonder if our activity is impressing Jesus or not. He doesn't seem to get impressed with a whole lot of activity. What's on the mind of Jesus is the worship of God and dignity towards God in His temple. What does it say about our gathered worship? When we come together, when, when, when believers come together, wherever they might be, in this place or other places, what's the focus of our mind? Where's our attention? What kind of attitude have we brought into the gathered temple. What kind of sacrifice of our time are we willing to give the Lord Jesus? It makes you wonder if you have any kind of self-awareness at all on a passage like this. It makes you wonder. I wonder if Jesus would just start swinging the whip and say, I, I'm fed up. I'm done with this. I, I've had patience and patience and patience not going to have any more of it. You come to worship, your attention isn't on me. Jesus speaking. 
You come to, come to worship, you can just imagine, can't you, Jesus walking in and, and Him announcing, your focus isn't on God when you come into the gathered worship of God's people. It hadn't been on God all week, and it wasn't on God when you pulled in the driveway. What kind of attitude Jesus would want to know? Are you bringing into this place? It's just a bunch of attitude, just a bunch of chaos, a bunch of confusion. In fact, your attitude, your focus, isn't any different than what's out there in the world. <laughs> kind of like the court of the Gentiles. No different. Be a little bit religious, of course. And obviously, they're being a little religious. It obviously is in a religious context. It's in the temple. But Jesus isn't impressed with all that activity. Jesus coming in, you have to wonder in the church, in the time that we live in, God's gathered people. Let's see. Let's see. How much time do I have for this Sunday morning? Let's see. I'm going to get out there for a run. I'll get a cup of coffee. I'm going to get my, get my protein drink down. And I'll, I'll run in. I see. I got, a, I got about 55 minutes, uh, maybe 75 minutes for this thing. And I, I've got, I got to get this done this afternoon. Can't you? What do you think Jesus would say about that? Don't we have to think about some of that? When you see a passage like this? Well, you'd have to think about Jesus, all those people coming into the temple complex. Whoa, I don't have a whole lot of time here. Let's get our sacrifice made, get this all thing made. See, the temple authorities had made it really convenient for the people. Very, very convenient for the people. I mean, and you can see how they could, it would be difficult to take an animal all of that distance. I mentioned that before. Yeah, I don't like the exchange rates with the money, but I can just go to the temple. I can just get all this taken care of right here. And I can get on and, you know, go around Jerusalem, take a tour of the city, get some activity going. It's convenient. It's easy. It's easy. While we're all about that, the 21st century in America, we'll make it easy for everyone. Why, if we made it even a little bit difficult, gosh, if our service ran to an hour and a half, make it really difficult on people. Oh, why, they, that'd make them so hard on them. Why, they wouldn't be able to fulfill their plans in the afternoon. They wouldn't be able to get their child to all of the sporting activities on Sunday afternoon or whenever the worship consists. Why, they've only got so much time and they're coming in. I've only got so much time. I, I don't have... You get the picture. Got God on a set schedule and a set timetable. Why? Is the temple of God fulfilling its purpose today? In the times we live, it actually seems a lot like self-indulgence, what I like, you better satisfy me. 
I've come to participate in your club here. I pay my dues. So you're going you're gonna to satisfy me self-indulgence or indifference. Make it easy. I want a convenient religion. At least we have to we have to think about that, don't we? Our attitudes, our focus, our willingness to sacrifice time to God in our worship. You know, it, it's, it's interesting to me here we are on the, on the back side of this, COVID, hopefully it's the back side, of this COVID pandemic. And uh, hopefully that will all pass and, and people can move on in, with their life as far as COVID is concerned. But haven't you heard this over the, you know, over the past year? Just so much infuriation that churches would be told that it, it, you can't meet. It's not wise for you to meet and assemble together. Well, who told you to do that? That's not constitutional. You don't have that right. Now, my point here isn't the constitutional part of it, whether it is or isn't, and the courts have already decided a lot of that for us. But my point is, there's just been a whole lot of noise about churches meeting. And it's going to be real interesting over the next year to see if that same passion, that same focus, that same attention is in place pertaining to the worship of God. The personal worship of God and the gathered worship of God or was that just an excuse for me to complain about the government? I'm going to be real interesting. I don't know how it's going to turn out. It'll be interesting to watch. Would to God that the gathered churches would have the same intensity and emotion about worship. Focus attention, life devotion to God. It would be a wonderful thing if that was actually true. So Jesus actually confronts sin. The sin that's taking place. He's confronting sin. Why? Because it it takes away, it diminishes from the true worship of God. And Jesus wants worship. Not merely singing. <laughs> Includes singing. Jesus wants worship with our entire lives. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Our whole lives. Jesus wants worship. Sin comes into the picture. We see a demonstration of sin in, in the courtyard, in the temple. It gets in the way of worship. 
And so he's, he's going to aggressively confront sin. And the kind of sin that Jesus particularly does not like, the, the kind of sin that Jesus particularly confronts is the sin of making the temple of God a laughing stock to the entire world. The whole world is coming into Jerusalem. Whole world's coming there. People from all over. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people gathering in Jerusalem. This huge population influx. And you can almost hear Jesus saying, you're making a laughing stock out of this temple. And he gathers that whip and he chases them out of there. The primary purpose, again, for the gospel writer is, is he's communicating the authority of Jesus. But we can learn from other aspects of this as well. You're making a laughing stock of something that should be holy. It should be distinct. It should be different. It should be sanctified from the world. And that is not taking place. I wonder what he'd say about churches today. Just making a laughing stock of his temple. Can you imagine what Jesus would think? People, people in the world saying, well, that's, that's the Trump church. No, that's the Biden church. Progressives there. That's the, that's the Obama church. That's, that's the Bush church. Just making a laughing stock. Out of what is God's. His honor. His dignity. The worship of His people in His temple. Makes you wonder. That Jesus aggressively confronts this sin because those attitudes, those actions, as I say, not any different from the world. And it makes us, it makes us think, doesn't it? it is, our, is our music in, in our gathered community, is it any different from the world? Those words, any different? Are the speeches that are made any different than what can be found throughout the week and on any media source? Is it different? Is it distinct? If it, is it different? Is the atmosphere in the building any different than the atmosphere of any other place you walk into during the week? It just makes you wonder. Or would Jesus say, you're just making a laughing stock of everything that I put in place and I'm going to get the whip out and take some action. We have to think about that. Well, spiritual pride will minimize these things. Spiritual pride doesn't want to have anything to do with any of this. Spiritual pride evades, redirects, blame shifts, minimizes. 
that want to take personal responsibility for the circus atmosphere in the temple worship of God. And that's what's going on in verse 18. So the Jews asked him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? There wasn't any kind of shock or contrition or any realization like, oh, Rabbi, you're right. This has gotten out of hand. We need to change this. No, no kind of repentance that way. They, they want to know what kind of sign do you give to show your authority. They're, they're redirecting. They're not dealing with it. If they were thoughtful, which surely they were, the San, Sanhedrin, Pharisees, Sadducees, high priests, they, they were thoughtful. Their whole career is studying the, the law, the law of Moses. They're thoughtful. They, they, they know they, they know that when someone shows up on the scene in the first place to do something like this is a messianic sign, but in the second place, so someone's showing up on the scene to do this, why, yeah, probably, you're right. This is not honoring to God. That's not, that's not what we see. They're, they're misdirecting, they're minimizing the circus atmosphere that takes is taking place in the temple in the worship of God. Remember, it's a religious environment. Very religious. Very religious environment. But it's a circus nonetheless. Okay. What about the temple today? back in the days of Jesus. Well, what we learn is that Jesus is the temple. The temple itself is a sign. Itself is a sign pointing to something greater. Where, where God in, in, in humanity come into contact. Where the blessing of God is real. The forgiveness of God is real. God reveals something of Himself through the temple, through Jesus, in Jesus. Jesus is the true temple. Jesus Christ is our true temple today. That temple in Jerusalem is obsolete. Those sacrifices are obsolete. Jesus came to give the one sacrifice and that's what He did. It is finished. His work is accomplished. We do not come gathered together to re-sacrifice Jesus every week because His work is finished. He is the true temple. Well, by virtue of Jesus being the, the true temple and by virtue of the people of God being in union with Jesus, the church also is the temple of God. You are, are the temple of God. You've come to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin. You've come with the attitude of repentance, casting yourself on the mercy and grace of God, casting yourself on the mercy of Jesus. You have identified with Jesus. And if you truly meant that and are coming to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit has come into your life and you are forever in union with God. By virtue of that, 
You're the temple of God. Jesus is the supreme temple. Jesus is the true temple. But you too, believer, the church is the temple of God. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. For through Him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In him, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the people of God, the people that have identified with Jesus, remember John 1, 12, those who received him, God gave the right to become children of God. Those people who have received Jesus are united with the true temple, Jesus, and are being built up as the temple of God, visible in this world, or as it says in verse 21, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Magnificent picture, the cornerstone, Jesus in this temple being built. First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ, through the temple of God, the true temple, Jesus Christ, being built up into this spiritual house. So, those, those rocks, those stones in that temple back in the day of Jesus, enormous, enormous size stones to build this massive structure, some of which we see today in Jerusalem at the Wailing Wall. Some of those stones being in, in place there as huge stones that were taken to build this structure. Now... You are a living stone. You are being built into this, this beautiful temple of God. So by virtue of our union with Jesus, well, this temple is made up of all kinds of individuals. All kinds of individuals. Not, not merely Israelites, Hebrews, people from all over the world. All kinds of individuals make up this temple that God is building. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple... And God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy. And you are that temple. 
you, sister, are that temple. You, brother, are that temple. I can say that because I know and am convinced of your union with Jesus Christ because of your faith in Christ alone. All kinds of people, all kinds of places in this world, all kinds of languages, all kinds of backgrounds being built into this wonderful, beautiful temple of God. So, God's living temple, you being that living temple, you being the church of God, the people of God. The bricks and the mortar we refer to as the church sometimes, the building sometimes. But the church is actually the people of God. The buildings are important, they're nice to have, the properties are nice to have, but the church is you. You are the church. God's living temple now is warned. God's living temple is warned against commingling with paganism, vain, vain philosophies, the functional worship of false gods. In the world we live in today, not too many people would declare that they're worshiping a false god. <laughs> the functional worship. How faith works out in real life. How worship works out in real life. The functional worship of a false god. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 14 to 18. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk with them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. There's this warning of mixing and commingling the temple of God, commingling what is unsacred, what is profane, what is not holy. And we get the picture with Jesus, right? That, the temple complex, what, what's not holy, this activity, this chaos that's going on, Jesus doesn't want any of that. We're warned against commingling with that in the world because you are the temple of God. You are distinct. You're holy. You're set apart. When people come and they, they see you, when they see you gathered together, when they see you personally, when they see you and your family, there's something different about you. It's different from what they see in the world. We're warned about commingling, mixing with what would be ungodly, 
Surely we're in the world in our careers and we're called to make witness. Jesus was in the world witnessing and the apostles were witnessing too. But that's as much different than identifying with the things of the world, bringing those attitudes and those actions and those priorities, and those urgencies into the worship in the temple of God. Colossians chapter 2 verse 6 through 10. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority, especially His temple. Remember where we started? Jesus is declaring His authority over the temple because it is His temple. Jesus is declaring His authority over this place because you are His temple. If you're claiming the name of Jesus in your home, Jesus is claiming authority in your home because He owns you. He owns your home. He has redeemed you. At least that's what you claim. And He has redeemed you. He has authority over you because He is God. And He has authority over His temple. And you are His temple. So, God's living temple is warned against participating in actions that that it defile or, or bring disgrace on, on that temple. He, he warns us because, well, I think you see now from the picture we see in Jerusalem and some of the picture that we see today that we do need the warning. We need the direction. Be very careful about participating in actions, getting along with attitudes, just casting off behaviors that are irreverent to God and actually defile and actually disgrace His temple. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 to 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You're not your own. You, you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Jesus has paid the redemption price. The question is whether you will come to Jesus and receive that redemption price and all that it means.
Jesus is Lord. Jesus having authority over his temple. Jesus being God. The deity of Jesus being proclaimed in these forceful actions that we're thinking about 2,000 years later. I don't think Jesus is too excited about the living stones of His temple going out into the world, circulating on their jobs or in their school or at the market or whatever we're doing and, and, and people looking at the neighbor across the street and, oh, I sure like her, I sure like him. I, yeah, they're just like me. Yeah, I, I know him. I, I know her. They, I really like them because well, they're just like me. They're, they're a Christian. I know that. They, they, they let it make, make known. But we're alike a lot. Well, I, I, I heard about Jesus. Yeah, they, they told me about Jesus. I like Jesus because he's, he's a lot like me. I'm cool with Jesus because who I am, my passions, my desires, why, why Jesus is down with that. He's okay with that. I like Jesus. I don't have any problem with Jesus. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I ask you to just review your Bible, if it makes any difference to you, to review your Bible. I've shared some passages with you today. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Colossians chapter 2, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Peter 2. Just review your, your Bible. God wants His best for you. His best, not your best. One of the pictures we grasp out of this passage and its implications for our life is is some reflection on our own life. How are you doing personally? Would Jesus bring the whip in your life personally? Or are there some attitudes or there some actions or there some behaviors, some priorities, some focuses that, that Jesus, it, it's just not, it's not proper to be commingling with that, with his temple. And you're claiming to be his temple. What about you personally? What about you in your family? You got all the music going on, right? In the background. <laughs> got a picture of Jesus over there. Maybe even a cross. That's important for you. I'm happy it is, but how's your family doing? Are there any attitudes, focuses, actions, behaviors, any chaos going on in in your home? I mean, you're claiming to be the people of Jesus, the, the living temple, and here you have your home, the people in your home. Would Jesus just walk in the door and just take a whip to all of that? I think we all have to reflect on that. What about preachers in the pulpit? Would, would Jesus? <laughs> I'm pretty sure he would in some pulpit. Yeah, some reflection on our own personal life. And, and when we do that, 
It will be a tremendous, a tremendous help in our lives. I want you to be encouraged. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're trusting in Jesus, you're, you're that living temple. And God's building something through you. You're, you're a part of it. Maybe you're not where you, you want to be after thinking about these things. Well, let's you and I get about the work of asking God to change us and transform us. And not ask Jesus, not ask God to just get along with us, with our deficiencies. Let's get up, go ahead and embrace transformation, which Jesus is all about. Some reflection on our life is, as Christians, as we gather together, wherever that might be, out on a yard or a lawn or a field somewhere, in a beautiful building somewhere, wherever that might be, let's think about our sacred time together. As I mentioned before, you are the, 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 the temple of God. You're being built. Jesus is the temple. We're, he's building us in this temple. But what about our... Are what we're bringing into the building where the people of God are. What are we bringing there? Is it holy? Is it, is it sacred? Is it different? Or is it more along the lines of, well, they just need to understand me because I'm that way. That's my personality. They need, they need to get over it. I'm being real. <laughs> no, Probably you're being sinful. What are we bringing into the temple that contributes to the sacredness, the holiness, the reverence that God deserves out of this temple? If you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I invite you to do that today. Turn from indifference, ignoring Jesus. Maybe you were hurt in the past. Maybe you have some questions. Let's just, just deal with that. But we need to turn from those toxic attitudes, those toxic beliefs that Jesus is not okay with and cast ourselves on Him and cling to the redemption that only He offers. That's what he's calling. He's, his call to people all over the world, wherever that might be. And today, here, Jesus is issuing that call to you. Come to him. Find the salvation that's only available in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this beautiful passage. And, and just making it possible that we could have it in our presence and look at it and reflect on it and see how passionate you are and your zeal for your house. Seeing that zeal that you have. And I pray, Lord, that I continue to pray that you would plant that zeal in our hearts, in our lives. Help that just fan that into a a massive flame, God. Make your people, wherever they are today, just enter into a time of zeal, a time of passion, un unknown to them in the past. They may have been very, very 
passionate for you in the past, just fan it into a greater flame, God. Those that have never known you, God, I pray that you would, you would do that work in them. Help them with their questions. Help them with their concerns. Thank you for your mercy and grace and patience upon us. Pray us in your name, Jesus. Amen.